Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. said to me that we were in, in, in a different time with Dayland. The first public shot in the cocaine wars. July of 1979 at Miami's busy Dadeland Mall shopping center. It was like high noon in the busiest shopping center in Dade County. At 2.30 in the afternoon. And here's this big truck, party time truck, pulls in. Nobody would pay any attention to that. These fellows get out, they go into a liquor store, the next thing you know, there's a big shootout going on. Several Colombian assassins fired machine guns and other weapons into a liquor store, killing narcotics dealer Herman Jimenez and his bodyguard. Also wounded were the store clerk and a stock boy. When the assistant medical examiner came, I asked him how many times the chief target had been shot, and he said, I stopped counting, he's like Swiss cheese. The gunmen fled the liquor store, still firing at cars and shoppers. And they sprayed the entire parking lot of that mall. They said, someone out there's got a shotgun and a shooting. You could hear shots like pop guns. And then they flee and they leave this truck behind. The secondary scene, which is where I was assigned to, was what has become known as the war wagon. The war wagon left behind by the machine gun wielding killers. This truck is a, a floating uh, armory. Police found the van fully equipped with guns, bulletproof vests, and ammunition. Metro police don't have a vehicle equipped like this one. The van was marked Happy Time Complete Party Supply. Officers say the name of the firm and the phone number are fictitious. When I saw the war wagon, when I saw the amount of weapons that were there, when I saw the amount of preparation, that said to me we were in a different game. Detectives say the war started on April 23rd. A gun battle broke out between the occupants of two cars racing around South Day. Two cars are shooting it out, and then the police car gets involved, and they start shooting at the police car. Car crashes. These people, before they got here a few weeks ago, were probably riding horses in the mountains of Columbia shooting at each other, and now they were in these expensive new cars shooting it out on the turnpike. The black Audi pictured here was owned by Herman Panesso. Inside the trunk, police found the body of Amy Suskin, another top figure in a Colombian drug family. Police say Suskin was killed in retaliation for the murder of Panesso's maid. Metro police say the war is still on. Every day in 1980, police say, has become just another day in Dodge City. The rate of killing here is accelerating faster than any other area in the nation. The efficient work of a gang the police call the Cocaine Cowboys. As they call them, the Cocaine Cowboys. For some reason, American society has always had this fascination with the freewheeling, high-sticking, gun-toting outlaw. The Cocaine Cowboys are as romantic as they are deadly. Carlos Boxali spent his entire adult life in Copland. His parents left everything behind to narrowly escape Castro's Cuba. As a boy, he was raised in New Jersey, later making his way to South Florida to become an elite undercover agent in Miami. At the height of the drug wars, when cocaine robberies were becoming rampant, 
Carlos was at the tip of the spear, originating the investigative techniques that later became commonplace nationwide. If you were a drug dealer, what better way to maximize your profits than to allow your competitor to take the risk of importation, then rip off their product and sell it as your own? Greed caused the drug dealers to turn on themselves with extreme violence. A drug dealer was not going to call the police to report that someone had stolen his narcotics, or worse, slaughtered his associates in the process. Drug dealing turned into drug stealing, and with it, murder and violence became the narco's get-rich formula. Carlos Boxali placed himself in the middle of the mayhem. 36 years total law enforcement. Uh, first year Miami-Dade uh, police uniform. Uh, five years uh, state beverage, mostly undercover, those five years. Uh, and then 30 years with ATF, running the gamut of street agent, undercover, um, tactical operations officer, still undercover, uh, SWAT, still undercover, and um, then academy, running the undercover school for four years in Glencoe. Uh, back out to the street with ATF, so um, 30 years of that, and then uh, ending up my career with polygraph as a polygraph examiner for the last five years. My parents were real disappointed in me. <laughs> uh, my aspirations were I wanted to be a, a truck driver, long-haul guy, or a cop, and, um, and cop won out. I didn't want to be in a, a job where I was in an office nine to five. Uh, I wanted to, you know, be out there and be out, not trapped in an office and, 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 and trying to help people, you know. Um, saw a lot of things growing up when I grew up in Newark, New Jersey uh, in the 60s. And all my friends either became cops criminals. That's it. All of them. And you know, my life could have taken us the other route because there were plenty of times that growing up, you're doing things that you're not supposed to be doing. And God forbid, if you would have gotten caught there, my life would have started taking another, uh, another way, you know, gone down another road, you know, a road like some of my friends went that they ended up going to prison. And, but Luckily, God blessed me and God, you know, didn't let me get caught <laughs> and I became a cop, you know. Developing his skills and expertise were not without perilous situations that a young undercover had to work through. I got a couple times where I got recognized or I got burned during an undercover. I'll give you both. I'll give you, I was talking to a bad guy. I was in the process of buying some silenced machine guns. And the whole time we're talking, everything's going great. And I give the guy, this is back in the day when we had the beeper transmitter. And we thought we were hot shit because now we had this beeper transmitter. And, you know. So I give the guy my uh, number to the beeper. And back then when they first came out, they didn't work. They weren't, you know, operational beepers. So I, did, I had not done my due diligence on the bad guy. And he had gotten burned the first time he went to prison on a beeper transmitter. 
So when I give him this beeper number, he excuses himself. He goes walking off, goes to the bathroom. He comes back. Where conversation's going great. He's sitting there, uh, but I know there's something wrong. And he, out of nowhere, after 15 minutes back in conversation, he goes, you're a cop. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you're a fucking cop. That pager you gave me, I called it while I went to the bathroom. And you still haven't gone and looked at your pager. So you're a fucking cop. And I grabbed my, my pager off my waist. And I'm like, you beat me on this? You got the right number? He read it back to me, yeah. I go, now on my mind, I'm going, oh my God, he's got me. So luckily, by the grace of God, again, I take the beeper and I throw it at him. I go, you keep that piece of shit. You know how much business I've probably lost? Because you're not the first motherfucker to tell me that I have, that I, I missed a page or, you know, that they've been calling me on the page and I didn't get it. So he's looking at me and like, no, I'll keep it. That, you might as well throw that in the ocean and use it as an anchor because it ain't doing me any good. And, you know, they all want to believe it. You know, so he throws it back at me and I go, I don't want it. And I put it right in the table, right in between us. Now I have this perfect conversation now hearing because now the pager is in between us and his voice is going into it and my voice is going into it instead of being under and out of the table. So long story short, we end up doing the deal down the road. and, and, and But I learned from that episode to do my due diligence find out everything about this guy in the past and see how he got busted and what techniques were used against him or whatever I can so that we don't get I don't get burned like that again now the other chance the other time that I was uh, burned or, or recognized in a an undercover deal is when I was with state beverage and I was on this in this bar and I was buying dope from this bad guy, Indio. His street name was Indio, Indian. And um, we're sitting there and I'm getting ready to pay for this pound of marijuana. And it's all on the pool table. And this guy comes walking into the bar. And he looks at me and I make eye contact with him. And I know this guy and he knows me. And he's like, hey man, does Del Monte still work with you guys? And I'm like playing it off going, I don't know what you're talking, you're talking to me, you know? And now this guy's getting hinked up and he's saying, hey man, be careful, this guy's in Spanish, he's going, este tiene brillo. And which means this guy's shiny, meaning the badge. And uh, so the guy's backing up and he's telling me, hey, you still working with Del Monte? So, hey, you know? And at that point I'm like, he's, this guy's already, fucking the whole thing up so I just turn around and I hit him in the face and we go crashing through the front door of the bar and I'm just beating the hell out of him <laughs> and I'm talking into the, my 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 uh, my my tell hey man come and get this guy out of here because he's gonna blow my cover and you know he's gonna get me killed so my guardian angels come out of the alley they grab this guy they take take him back into the they take him out of the set. So I'm standing there going, all right, I got two, two ways to go. I go back in or I walk away and, and I lose. And being a young guy, I didn't want to lose. So what I do is uh, 
probably stupidly go back in and uh, confront the guy back again. And I, I start talking to him. And I go, come on, Indio. Get me, no, no, you're a cop, you're a cop. I go, come on, Indio. And I, I do what most of us do undercover. We let the money, we let the cash do the talking. So I threw the cash on the pool table. And I go, look, either you're going to make that money tonight or somebody else is going to make that money tonight because I need to get some dope. So what do you think he did? He sold it to me. And then down the road, you know, we arrested him and the arrest day comes up. I knew you were a cop. I go, yeah, and you were still a dumb shit and you still sold to me. With experience and success comes comfort and confidence. I cut my teeth in undercover with State Beverage. And I remember one of the first few times going out, I was going out with these guys that were seasoned pros and we'd go into these clubs trying to buy dope. And I couldn't buy dope for nothing. It was like I had a big cop badge on my on my forehead, like loser, loser, you know, and I couldn't get it. In fact, I went up to this one person, tried to hit him up for dope, and then my training officer went to the same person, hit that person up and bought dope from him. So I was like, uh, I'm in the wrong gig, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And uh, no, it's just that sometimes the bad guy likes you and eats your line of shit, and sometimes they don't. And that's something that an undercover's got to really get used to. You don't win every time. Federal agencies were assigning their best and brightest to South Florida to combat the wave of narcotics trafficking. The murders of undercover ATF agents Ariel Rios and Eddie Benitez were two of the early casualties of the drug war, and showed the rest of America on the 6 o'clock news what these agents were risking. It was something that put the violence of the undercover world meeting the, the drug world right there into your living room because you saw Ariel on the sidewalk get in, in the... In the in the life suit, getting all the blood out of his extremities, trying to keep it in his body. He was in the pressure suit, and they were pumping his chest. The news was right there on top of that. So it brought it home, almost like, you know, when they started broadcasting the Vietnam War. It brought the, you know, right into your living room. And it showed you the violence and, and the, the, the lethality of, of doing that type of work in the early 80s in, in Miami. Uh, Eddie Benitez also, I mean, uh, the media wasn't there and there wasn't that much raw footage, but it just showed you what these people were, were ready to do in broad daylight just to save themselves to get away. Uh, they had no respect for law enforcement because Eddie identified himself as a police officer and and what ended up happening is the guy thought he was getting ripped off, you know, uh, because of all these home invasions. The opening audio news clip of this episode describes the now infamous Daedlin Mall drug ripoff. The drug game was so competitive in Miami, the risk of importing product had become so treacherous that drug dealers found an easier path, stealing each other's narcotics after they had arrived in the U.S., Carlos and his crew had to invent new policing tactics to fight it. Indiscriminate shooting of a machine gun in the parking lot of a uh, 
major South Florida mall, you know, shopping center. And it just showed at that point the indiscriminate, uh, non-caring of for life, you know, for civilian life. And they didn't care who would get caught in the crossfire, which shows the violent tendency of these, you know, drug cartels. It was a South Florida phenomenon, you know. It was something that was really just happening so indiscriminately and so often, you know, that there were just these homes full of dead bodies everywhere that, you know, we said, what's going on here? And once we figured it out, we said, you know what, these are the guys that we got to go after, you know. And it, it was it was happening everywhere around the country. It was just so predominant in 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 Miami at the time because of the Colombian drug lords and there it's a very violent you know subculture we were the first ones uh, that started the whole home invasion investigation and that came about because of the fact that in the early 80s late 70s early 80s in Miami the cocaine cowboy days we'd be rolling up on houses with dead bodies and nothing in the house and we were figuring out what what's going on here and what happens is these were all stash houses where these uh, home invaders would come in either acting like police officers and, and raiding the house robbing and stealing uh, killing everybody in the house uh, and, and we knew we needed to get ahead of that I mean these were marauders these were murderers running on the loose in Miami uh, just killing people. They were going to a gunfight. That's their mentality. They were going to a gunfight. We needed to combat these types of uh, animals that were out there. We uh, came up with a plan where we would act like disgruntled uh, employees of a stash house where we would run a stash house uh, and just engage these um, individuals in, in conversation to, you know, are they up to the task? Have they done it before? You know, we were, we were the guys that um, would meet face-to-face. -face. I was one of the guys that would meet face-to-face -face with these murderers, these uh, homicidal maniacs that just wanted to go and get dope or money and kill all the witnesses, of which eventually I was supposed to be one of the guys that they were going to kill because... They wanted all the dope and the money for themselves. So it was a, a dangerous type of undercover. Um, and, you know, at any moment, these guys could snap on us. Uh, the only thing that really keeps us alive is not knowing the location till the last minute. Um, you know, that's what, that's what keeps me safe. And there was one instance where these guys didn't believe I didn't know where the stash house was and I was sitting in a uh, restaurant in Miami Beach on Washington Avenue and this guy sticks a gun in my in my side and he goes tell me where the house is tell me right now where the house is I know you know where the house is and I'm like dude I don't know now this is all in Spanish but mind you because uh, these were some Marielle hitmen so he's telling me, where's uh, the stash house? And I'm saying, look, you're going to blow this thing. You're, you got this gun in my side. Somebody's going to see the gun. They're going to call the cops, and we're all going to get busted, and nobody's going to make any money. So, And the guy keeps on. Now, 
the reason I said that about this gun on my side is to let my team on the outside know, all right, I'm at gunpoint, and they had their protocols on what needed to be done. In fact, the protocol is don't do anything. As long as I'm talking, don't come in. I don't need you to come rescue me. Let me do the talking. So <clears throat> I'm talking to the guy. I'm going, what is that, a, a howitzer you got on my side? You know, <clears throat> I go, let's get out of this restaurant and go talk somewhere so that nobody will see, you know, what you're doing here and nobody's going to call the cops. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want them to get outside. Now I just let my cover team know that I'm coming out and take these motherfuckers down. So I'm giving them a blow-by-blow, play-by-play as I'm walking out. I'm saying, hey, be careful. There's the, we're coming up to the counter. Don't let anybody, any of the people on the counter see this gun in my side. Keep it hidden. Don't let anybody see it. So now I'm telling them as I'm walking where I'm at in the restaurant so that they can time their time to get to the front. Look out. Here's the, we're coming up to the register on the front. Don't let anybody see the gun. And I see my cover team by the front door, and I know that everybody's in position. So we go walking out. And, and luckily this guy wasn't a shooter in broad daylight, you know, and we were able to take them all down. Um, but, I mean, it just shows you it can go bad at any time. The, the tricky thing is, is that we're regaining control while they're thinking that they're oh, still in control. Here. That's why these home invasion things were so detrimental, not only because of the violence that they ensued, but then now all the bad guys didn't know who was good, who was bad, or who was who. Was who. We had, during some of our investigations, doing the home invasions, the guys would come up in a plainclothes car with a little blue bubble on the front dash. They had homemade um, battering rams to bust open the front door. Uh, they were wearing uh, security guard badges that they would get at the cop shops. They'd come dressed as cops, some of them. Carlos later took his institutional street knowledge and translated it into ATF's renowned undercover training program, helping officers and agents improve their tactics, keeping them safe, and most importantly, keeping them alive. A lot of times when people go to training, um, the instructors, the, they have a bad reputation because, oh, those that can't do anymore teach. Well, that's not the case that we had here at ATF. We would take seasoned undercover guys, bring them in to teach these courses because you, you learn from the guys that were out there doing the job, okay? And that's why our ATF school was so credible throughout the nation. People would, there was a waiting list of three, three years in order to get in uh, to the school. The training, there was nothing like, you know, I remember getting calls three, four o'clock in the morning from people in the West Coast saying, hey man, what you did saved my life. This is what happened. Boom, boom, boom. And they tell you the story. And it was almost like a scenario that we had just put them through in, in, in our training. So, I mean, that was very uh, grateful. I was so grateful to get those calls, even though my wife didn't appreciate these three o'clock in the morning, morning phone calls. And it was also not only young cops, but 
seasoned undercover guys just calling to say, hey, man, thanks for teaching me what you taught me because this is what just happened. So those phone calls were very, very gratifying and, and helping me know that maybe I did make a little difference. You can't bullshit a bullshitter. If you would have brought somebody that was just had no experience, those students sitting across from us that were seasoned agents that have been doing undercover because these are advanced undercover schools, they could see right through that. They knew who was credible and who wasn't credible. So, I mean, the only way to keep this program at the top was to bring in the best of the best to teach and the guys that were actually doing it and would take the time to get out of their cases and come in and teach these new guys and save their lives so that when they went back out on the street, they were that much better and that much more confident. Because when you're confident, you perform better. Carlos speaks to the important mindset of comfort and confidence. Part of my career, aside from being an undercover guy and being on SWAT at the same time, I was also a tactical operations officer, which was our tech guy. And when I would set up, think about it. I was an undercover on a deal. I would go in, I would set up the room with my cameras and my microphones and mic it all up. And that gave me more confidence in knowing that the bad guy ain't going to find my shit that I set up in there because I did it. And I was confident in my abilities that it gave me that much more confidence during my undercover role to just focus on the bad guy and not worry about, does he see the camera? Did he see where the microphone is? You know? So I was very fortunate. I had the best of both worlds, of all worlds. I was an undercover guy. I was a tech guy. I set the room up. And then I would bust them with, uh, as a SRT member coming in and, and taking them down. And barely any paperwork. It was the best. And the funny thing is, is everybody is in awe of undercover. And I pride myself and, and the rest of us, we all have that personality where, you know, we want to be the best at what we do. and We want to be the best undercover. And you have to do it. And you have to, because you have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to succeed. Because the guy sitting across the table from you is going to see it. He's going to read it in your eyes, in the way you carry yourself, in your body language. You know, if you're pussying out, he's going to see it and he's going to tear you up. You have to believe in yourself. You have to think you're the best. But all, all in all, knowing that I may not be, I may not win this time, you know, but you got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe in, in what you're bringing to the table and the confidence that you exude and, and put in this guy's face because that's what the, where the credibility comes from, you know? Your body language, the way you look, the way you talk. If you don't talk to talk and walk to walk, you're going to be, you know, out on your ass. Carlos transitioned from the street to a trainer and then used the totality of those experiences to become one of the country's top polygraph examiners. And police work and undercover work gave me the tools I needed to become the polygrapher, the polygraph guy. Because in undercover, 
you're getting information from the bad guy and he doesn't want to give you information. So it's an interview technique where you're talking to him and he's giving you information and you're giving him nothing. So it's a, it's a, like I said, it's a, you're interviewing the guy, but he doesn't know he's being interviewed. It's the same thing in the polygraph world because before I sit you down and strap you to the box, I'm interviewing you and I'm getting information from you that I need to know in order to set you up and put you in the right frame of mind to take the test. So it was very beneficial to be able to be a good interviewer and interrogator uh, before getting into polygraph. Like many super achievers in the cop game, the source of Carlos's greatest achievement is also a part of his greatest regret, family. My greatest achievement is my family, my wife. I've been blessed with a wife that has stuck with me through all the crap that I put her through, you know, and my kids and the missing of the birthdays and the anniversaries and my, you know, and, and they grew up to be pretty good kids. Some bumps in the road, but, you know, they were great kids. And the probably the worst part of the whole thing is that I created those bumps in the road because of my career, you know, with my family. So I've been retired now three years, and the people that are still there are my, is my family, and they never left. I left them during my days of working because everything was work, 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 reputation, reputation, good cases, cases, put bad guys, put, put bad guys away, and, 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 and that's all that you focused on. Um, I'm very blessed now because I have four amazing grandkids, uh, and I'm spoiling them and giving them what I didn't give my own kids, you know. And it's sad. I look back now and I see all that I missed because of everything that I've been able to give my grandkids because they're my focus that I have now. Before was my career and my job, and everybody took a hit for that because especially in our agency, it's so small that if you get a bad reputation, you never get rid of it. So you got to keep your good reputation. And the only way to have a good reputation is to be a worker and to put the, the, the job first in front of family. And that's what we all did. At least the, the guys that weren't waiting for the phone call to say, hey, there's a bad guy in cuffs coming down and we got him with a gun. You know, those roadkill cases. I didn't want to do roadkill cases. I wanted to put real bad guys that needed to go away. And that caused a lot of pain and suffering in my house because I wasn't there. And even when I was at home, I wasn't there because I was thinking about, I got to get back there. And God only knows what's going on, you know. So... It really runs it home right now because of all the time I spend with my grandkids. And I miss a lot with my kids. But they still turned out good. They're resilient. <laughs> there was a time and place not too long ago when undercover was king. There was a large number of amazing operators working the streets, making historic cases with life and death risks. And together, they raised the standards of success. Carlos led the way. We all pushed each other. We all 
you know, wanted to one-up each other and not because of anything, but just because of that's the way we, we did things, you know, and we wanted to be the best at what we did. It was healthy, and we just maintained each other, you know, grounded and uh, striving to be safe, but be successful and one up the next guy. God and faith, they helped provide Carlos stability during an unstable time in his life. God is a, a big portion of, of my life. I, that's the way I was raised as a Catholic, to believe in, in the Bible and, and to have um, faith and believe, you know, even knowing that some of the things that are in the Bible are hard to believe, but that's where faith comes in. And I've always had faith, and I wanted to instill that in my family. I wanted to instill that in my kids to give them a good foundation the same way my parents gave it to me. And that helped me in getting through some of the hard times, you know, because before going in on a, on a deal or, you know, I would, I would say a prayer, I would talk to God, um, but I would do it on my own terms. I wouldn't, I'm not the guy that goes to church every Sunday, you know. Um, I, I talk to God a lot and it's not in church and it's my own way. I have a conversation with him. It's not this 10 Hail Marys and to our fathers and no, I, I, I believe in, in it. I think it's helped me throughout and it's kept me safe. Carlos closes out with a small but important piece of old school advice. An, an, old, an old timer told me uh, a long time ago something that stuck with me forever. It's like the bad guys have to be lucky every day of their lives. I just got to get lucky one day to get into them, you know. Their luck's going to run out, you know, and I just need to get lucky one time. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.